You ever had trouble with a reading plan through Scripture? Do you guys know what I mean? We pastors joke about this all the time. Reading plans, they last really well until about January something when Genesis is over. (laughs) You know, how does it go? Genesis is weird, but it's cool. God creates everything, and then there's the flood and all that, and then Abraham and, (coughs) sorry, the story of his whole family. And then you're like, oh, this is pretty interesting. Then Exodus happens, and Exodus opens up with Charlton Heston, let my people go, the whole thing, right? And then about like, I don't know, a few chapters into Exodus, all of a sudden you realize, boy, there's like a lot of chapters left, and this Moses stuff is like as much of the story as I remember, you know? And then Moses comes down with the law, and he starts, okay, here's the rules, guys. And you get through Exodus, and you're like, boy, that was a lot of rules and laws and stuff. But let's see, Genesis, Exodus, and then you get to Leviticus. All right, let's see what this one's all about, right? And you get to Leviticus, and they're like, okay, and then you kill this animal. and you. So, it, like, we have trouble with some of those books, don't we? Uh, watch, let's read some of these together, okay? And we'll ask, do we do this stuff? That's what we're going to do, okay? Is this your guiding principle as a follower of Jesus? Of all that are in the waters, you may eat these. Whatever has fins and scales, you may eat. And whatever does not have fins and scales, you shall not eat. It is unclean for you. So that means what's off limit for us then? Shrimp, crab cakes. Oh, no. Oh, no, my, my precious crab cakes. Uh, yeah, yeah, a lot, right? Okay, so I've literally never thought about this when I was at, um, what's the restaurant we go to? Uh, Chipino's, right? Or somewhere, or Tommaso's getting seafood pizza. It's really good. They put on those uh, calamari. Yeah, they put on the little uh, clams. Heaven likes to make little puppets with the clams. All right, let's keep going. We got some more rules. This is from a section called Miscellaneous Laws. You shall not see your brother's ox or his sheep go astray and ignore them. You shall take them back to your brother. And if he doesn't live near you and you don't know who he is, you shall bring them home into your house. It'll stay with you until your brother seeks it. Then you shall restore him. Okay, you ever done that? And you shall, there's a lot of these. You shall do the same with his donkey or with his garment or with any lost thing of your brother's, which... Let me start the timer, sorry. <laughs> Which he loses. Uh, anyway, keeps going. Uh, this is a good one. A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. If, okay, here's a really important one. If you come across a bird's nest in any tree or on the ground with young ones or eggs, and the mother is sitting on the young or the eggs, you shall not take up the mother with the young. You should let the mother go, but the young you could take for yourself, that it may go well with you and that you may live long. When you build, okay, so you can kill the, eat the eggs and kill the babies and eat those, but you got to leave the mother chicken alone, right? When you build a new house, you shall make a parapet on your roof. I don't know what that is. Is that like a fence? That you may not bring the guilt of the blood upon your house. You got to put a railing on your house so nobody falls off the edge. You shall not sow your vineyard with two kinds of seed, lest the whole yield be forfeited. The crop that you have sown and the yield of the vineyard, you shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. So you can't have a garden with two things in it, and you can't plow that garden with two different kinds of animals. Uh, Boy, there's a lot of these, right? Um, Let's jump to this last one here. Here we go. This one would cripple the entire U.S. economy. 
you shall not charge interest on loans to your brother, interest on money, interest on food, interest on anything that is lent for interest. You may charge a foreigner interest, but you may not charge your brother interest, that the Lord your God may bless you and that you may undertake the land that you are entering and to take possession of it. Okay, so how come we don't do any of this stuff? Right? It's there in the Bible, and I stand up here every week and I talk about how important the Bible is, and I say we take the Bible literally because we do. So the question is, what? <laughs> so we take the Bible literally. Sometimes are we a bunch of hypocrites? Right, here's a, um, this is a very common uh, sort of gotcha, you Christians are all hypocrites sort of a thing, right? You don't, what? Do you guys remember the show The West Wing from the 90s or early 2000s? Um, it was about the president and um, played by, uh, what's his face there? Martin Sheen. And so there's a scene in this where uh, Aaron Sorkin is like the smug writer of the show who thinks he knows everything. He's one of those people that's like, um, I'm going to put a ton of dialogue in this thing with no action and no anything interesting, and then everybody will just think I'm smart. You know? So anyway, he has a bunch of shows and stuff in movies. Um, this scene specifically, I hope the sound works. I don't know. We can start over. Let's see. Is that playing? Yeah, it's good. So Aaron Sorkin, who wrote this episode, he's so smug. He thinks he, oh, look at it, I got this big gotcha. These Christians are all a bunch of hypocrites. And, you know, they, anybody who takes a biblical sexual ethic also has to figure out the, you know, the sewing two things and the clothes. Okay, so the question then today is, what do we do with this? Right? Because you'll hear this, but you, you spend five minutes on Reddit, you're going to read this, and anything where uh, Christianity comes up, Right? So, we're going to talk about this today. Jesus is going to talk about the law. Um, so, let's, get it. let's jump into the text. So, we're in Luke 16, verse 14. <clears throat> the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. Okay, so the Pharisees, Jesus has been teaching. If you remember, um, most of you guys weren't there when we did the joint service. Some of you were last week when we did um, the dishonest manager, and... Um, I actually haven't put it on the website yet because I just got the thing. I'll do them both today. Um, but you can go back and listen. Jesus has been talking about dealing with money because money is such a big idol. And it says here specifically, Luke gives us this editorial note. These Pharisees, these guys who Jesus has been arguing with, uh, they were lovers of money, right? Now, it's very easy to read this with a deep sense of judgment in our hearts. Pharisees were the bad guys. I'm the good guy. Why? Because I go to church, I follow Jesus, I'm better. But we need to stop here and think about this. When we read the phrase, they were lovers of money, doesn't that really describe all of us? <laughs> Who doesn't love money, right? Money's great, it buys things. <laughs> it's very easy to fall in love with money. And so, I mean, we're not going to get into this a ton. This, you can go back uh, later today and listen to the podcast from last week. Uh, but anyway, so these Pharisees who don't like all of this teaching that Jesus has been doing about money and discipleship, uh, they heard these things and they made fun of them. Now, imagine a group of like, you know, some sort of guys, high finance kind of dudes. Um, you know, the, the, the kind of guys who ended up at their job because that's what their dad did. You know what I mean? Right? <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Uh, they wear boat shoes like all the time. Then, you know, I, well, actually a lot of them do have boats, but you know what I mean? You know the guy, right? Nice car, suit, everything. Suits that aren't even from the men's warehouse. Okay. 
these some fancy dudes. And they're sitting around at a coffee shop having a meeting where they talk about money or whatever. I don't know. I never had money, so I don't know how that goes. But, um, <laughs> and they're sitting there, and this guy uh, at the booth next to them or whatever starts butting in their conversation and giving them advice. And then the high finance guy says, cool, what do you do? And he goes, oh, I worked a drive through at Jack in the Box. Most likely, they're either going to laugh and ignore him, or they're going to be polite and wait till he leaves, and then they're going to laugh and completely ignore his advice. This guy's broke. What does he know about this whatever money stuff we're talking about? I'm guessing that's exactly what these guys did with Jesus. Jesus was broke, right? When it came time to pay taxes, he needed a miracle, literally. You know, let's go cut these fish open and find some money inside, and that's how I'm going to pay my taxes, right? Jesus did not have very much money. And so for Jesus to get up and spend so much time talking about money, these Pharisees probably were like, this dude's broke. What is he talking about? What does this poor guy know? Except they weren't polite, probably like those guys in the coffee shop would have been in our culture. They were ridiculing Jesus openly to his face. That's such a weird, that's such an interesting, like, just to think about how that went. Jesus is talking about money. Like, our culture is very, so this culture was too, but very polite. If a pastor gets up and says something you don't like, usually what do you do? You sit there and listen for the rest of it, and then you leave right after. Very few people will even get up and leave in the middle of it. <laughs> Nobody would ever stand up in our culture and start making fun of me <laughs> in the middle of a sermon for something. That's, what, that's what's happening here with Jesus. Verse 15, and he said to them, so to, to these guys who love their money and make fun of Jesus for this teaching, those, uh, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. All right, now we're getting to the key of things. This is the elder brother from the prodigal son story. You guys think that by working hard and following these rules, you're automatically in. So just real quick, the Pharisees, the movement of the Pharisees, I, I may have talked, I think I've talked about this before, but the way the Pharisees became a thing was during the exile, what happened with the exile was nobody was following the law of God. All those rules we just read, all the stuff about Sabbath, all the worship stuff, nobody was doing it. And their hearts weren't in it, even when they were doing a little bit of it. And so God sent the people into exile into Babylon. And while they were in Babylon, a bunch of guys got together and they said, boy, we want to make sure this never happens again. We're going to follow these rules extra carefully. That's the Pharisees. Started out with good intentions. We want to super follow God, right? But it turned into now just blindly following these rules and the extra rules that they've added on without the heart behind it automatically gets me in. And so this is what Jesus is arguing with these guys about. And he says, look, you think you can just go out and behave and follow your own stupid rules and justify yourselves, but here's the deal. God knows your heart. For the self-righteous person, the guy who is absolutely rotten in the middle with this love of money, right, at his core, but is outwardly just blindly following rules, that's a terrifying thought, that God knows your heart, right? God looks right past all the outside crap that everybody else sees, Pharisees, that you have made yourselves look real good right to the core of who you are. Jesus at one point calls them whitewashed tombs. He's like, you're like a really nice grave, it's all pretty on the outside, and what's on the inside is death. It, you're rotting. It's not good, right? And so, um, sin in the biblical story is ultimately telling God in your heart, I don't want you to be in charge. I'm still in charge. And self-justification, the older brother is doing that, right? I'm still in charge of my, I'm the one in control here. And if I follow this, God, you owe me that, 
right? It's this self-justification. And if that's true, if that's what sin really is at the heart, that self-justifying is one kind of sin. But what we should expect to see in human history is all kinds of different people living out of different modes of a fallen human heart. And that's exactly what Jesus says next in the rest of verse 15. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. We should see the world full of people who are doing things that are an abomination to God. Abomination is such like a harsh Old Testament word. It just means like, I hate this thing, right? It's not, a, it's not real complicated, right? Like the Dodgers, an abomination, right? We hate the Dodgers. It's the same thing, right? Okay, do we see this in Scripture? Yeah, we see it all over Scripture. Scripture is full of war and child sacrifice, all these sorts of things that slavery, things that God has said, I hate that thing. In Jesus's day, was this true? Yeah, he's talking specifically to these guys, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money. They loved this self-justification. Other cultures outside of the Bible, we see the same, like, there's just a lot of things in the world that are opposed to the things of God, right? Think of, um, like, Viking culture, right? Their culture was set up around what? War and dominating other cultures and stealing and raping and pillaging. They're, these were the people that they celebrated were people that we would today throw in jail or like move over to the other side of the world. You have the Hindu caste system where where you're born means you're worthless to me, how you're born in our society. You have medieval Europe and man, there was some really weird stuff like about worshiping relics. <laughs> there was a lot of really weird worship stuff that happened in medieval Europe you know, that like, I don't know, there was enough, somebody said that once, like there was enough pieces of the cross to build an entire cathedral out of wood, you know, like all over and nails and everything. Um, go to the other side of the world. You have the Aztecs with, you know, it's really interesting because like I saw this thing the other day. Oh man, the architecture of this temple thing was so interesting and everybody was talking about the architecture. And then somebody was like, oh, hey, by the way, I'm a professor of yada yada. This was on Reddit in the comments. I'm a professor of something that I don't remember. And um, this whole thing that you guys are admiring is like the pyramid where at the top they would like sacrifice people. <laughs> like human beings being sacrificed, you know. Or think of, let's jump north just a little bit, the African slave trade and the oppression of minorities in the U.S., right? The world is filled with these, these people who are doing things that are an abomination to God, against the law of God. And so, the challenge here to the Pharisees is this. This is what this passage is all about. Never assume that you're just automatically on God's side. That's what he's saying to these Pharisees. You think you're on God's side because you're blindly following these rules, but really, you're just doing what everybody else in the world is doing. You're doing what the Vikings did. You're doing what the Aztecs did. You're just living as your own Lord and doing whatever you want. You might not be sacrificing humans, and hey, thanks for that, but it's still, it's not enough. So how can we then know if we are on God's side? How do we know? This is what he says. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. So the law and the prophets was a very common way to speak about the Old Testament, right? The story of the Old Testament. The Old Testament was God's uh, revelation to his people, right? I love Psalm 119. It's this very long psalm about loving the, loving the word of God. Let me read to you just this part here. How can a young man keep his way pure? 
by guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as, in, as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts. I will fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes, and I will not forget your word. That's beautiful, right? That's such a cool, this is what the word of God was supposed to be, was this revelation that guided the people of God. But here's what he says. Look at this. The law and the prophets, this beautiful uh, revelation of God was until John. What does that mean? Right? What do we do with this? Well, what this means for us is that we have to read the Old Testament in its like original context. So you guys know I kind of joked earlier about Charlton Heston, right? But you guys, you've seen the movie, you know what happens, right? Just kidding. You've read Exodus maybe? So here's what happened was God freed the people from Israel. I'm sorry, from Egypt, the Israelites from Egypt. Took them to the mountain at Mount Sinai. And at one point, God says, hey, I'm going to come down and I'm going to be your God. And all the people freak out. No, I don't want that at all. We need a mediator. We need somebody to go... So, okay, they choose Moses. So Moses goes up the mountain. There's thunder, there's lightning, there's the whole thing, right? And God gives this law to Moses. And he says, look, you guys are going to be a nation. And here are the laws. They're going to guide you as a nation. Here is my revelation. Now, the purpose for that Old Testament law was for the actual physical group of people, this nation of Israel during that time. Right, here's like a story. Like when I was a kid, I was not allowed to use the stove. Makes sense, right? Heaven's not allowed to use the stove. That's a really important law. Oh, you heard your name? Hey, buddy. <laughs> yeah, when you're grown up. Uh, anyway, she's not allowed to use the stove. Now, that was a really important law given to me by my parents, a rule. But when I was a teenager, same parents, same house, uh, I was allowed to use the stove. Right? What happened? I still didn't and I still don't. <laughs> By the way, Melissa gave me a lot of, I've told you guys that, right? The, we bought the new stove, and then one day I went in, and I asked her, hey, how do you turn this one on? It's different. She was like, we've had this stove for eight months, <laughs> and you still not, never turned it on. I don't know. You're a really good cook. I don't know. And Grubhub, man. Uh, anyway, <laughs> so anyway, uh, I, all of a sudden, then, I'm allowed to use the stove. So what changed, right? Well, I moved into a new phase of life, this is how God deals with his people throughout Scripture, in covenants, in, in phases. Now, there isn't a whole time for a sermon. This is a whole teaching series that could take months, right, about the covenants of God. Um, but let me explain something. When the word covenant means deal, it's like God makes a deal like a contract with his people, basically. And uh, don't think of covenants, though, as separate boxes, right? So he was in this covenant, and then he left it, and he moved over in this one, and that one's gone now and doesn't really apply. Um, a more helpful picture to think about how God deals with his people is a staircase, okay? So think of, how a, think of a staircase, right? You have the covenant with, Ab um, sorry, with Adam, right? It gets us going. It defines sin, good and evil, and all that. The covenant with Noah built on that and showed us the grace of God and his promise to redeem humanity. The covenant with Abraham sort of narrows that promise, and um, God promises the Messiah. The covenant with David narrows that promise even more. Oh, I skipped Moses, didn't I? The covenant with Moses built the nation of Israel, you know, all that stuff. Um, anyway, 
So all those covenants in that we see in the Old Testament, these deals that God's making, what he's doing is he's leading his people up a staircase. At the top of the staircase is eternity and life in uh, perfection with Jesus. That's the top of the staircase. And so what he's saying here in verse 16 is that the law and the prophets were until John, meaning the coming of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus has moved the people of God from one stair to the next stair. It has moved us up a stair. And so while every rule and regulation that we read in the Old Testament was directly for the people of that time and means it's not directly applicable to us now, that doesn't mean that all that stuff has been done away with. Right? Just because it's not, just because we're allowed to plant two different types of grapes in our vineyard doesn't mean that that stuff is not helpful. And this is what Jesus kind of gets at in the next verse. But really quick, I want to just show you this. What's he talking about with this very odd little section at the end? Right? He says, uh, since then the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, everyone forces his way into it. That's a really weird sentence, little phrase that people kind of argue over what it means. It's odd language. There's a handful of interpretations. One is some people believe it takes sort of metaphorical violence, force against your old self to come into the kingdom. You have to kill the, the flesh. Um, some people say this, it's God forcing people into the kingdom, God sort of pushing people in. I think the third interpretation makes the most sense. Jesus is arguing with these Pharisees and about who's in the kingdom and who's not in the kingdom. And he tells them, you guys think you're automatically in because you sort of follow these rules and this extra stuff that you've created. You're trying to self-justify, and that's not how it works. But you're actually out. Meanwhile, I'm here teaching about it. And look at these crowds. He's like, these crowds are all coming in in such big numbers that it's like leaving the Giants game. You know, you guys have left the Giants game like this, and you walk, you know, and everybody's chanting, here we go, Giants, or whatever. And like, it's just, it, there's a lot of force moving people in an, you know, I think that's what Jesus is talking about. I think he's saying, you guys hate all these people, and they're the ones that are with force. They're coming into the kingdom, right? There's a lot of these guys coming into the kingdom. Okay, now back to the discussion, though, about the staircase and the law, right? Is Does, does what he said mean the law of God is not useful anymore? Oh, wait, sorry, let me jump to, here we go. He says, no, it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void, you see, his, he's explaining the staircase idea. These guys, these Pharisees, they were devoted to the law of Moses and the oral tradition you know, that they've added on. And when Jesus comes along with a new stair, for him to say, you guys actually aren't at the top of the staircase, was very upsetting for these people, right, for these guys. They think they have the whole world figure out, figured out. And he's like, no, 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 you're only part of the way there. There's more to this story. And so it's very upsetting. Now, an example of this, sort of shocking for us followers of Jesus, is there was a dude in the 1800s, came along, and he goes, actually, you guys only have part of the story. There's a whole other part, you know, Joseph Smith. He was like, you guys have a whole other part of the story where Jesus came to uh, what's now, you know, like to North America or whatever, and this whole, you know, and a lot of the believers were like, mm, that's baloney, right? <laughs> I, well, because it is. But also, that sort of, you can see though, it's the same kind of thing, right? Jesus was to these guys what Joseph Smith is to us. They didn't believe him and they thought he was nuts. Be because he's saying there's more to this story. The difference is he was actually right. 
And so what he's doing, though, is he's trying to reassure them that this was part of God's plan all along. So, but, but there's this weird sort of conflict here, right? Look at what he says in Matthew 5. Do not think that I've come to, it's a similar kind of teaching. Do not think I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. That's key. For truly, I say that until heaven and earth pass away, not one yoda, not a dot will pass from the law until it all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does not uh, sorry, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus, on the one hand, is saying this law is super important. Uh, oh, and then, sorry, one more verse. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So he's saying, look, the law is still super important, and you can't relax any of these rules. But then at the same time, jump forward just a little bit in the book of Mark, when he had entered to the house, he left the people... Um, sorry, and his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you those without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him since it enters his heart, not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. So on the one hand, Jesus is saying everything in this law is still super important for us. And then on the other hand, he's saying, but actually none of these food laws apply to us anymore. So Jesus kind of which one is it? How does that work? The way it works is to really understand the staircase, is to understand that that's how God has continually worked with his people. He, he sort of drags them along into eternity. He works with us very slowly. And so what does that mean then for the law of Moses and believers in this new, new covenant? Well, theologically, the way people have always kind of broken this up is when you're looking at the Old Testament— there's basically three kinds of laws. There's, there's 613 like rules is how they kind of count them in the Old Testament, in the law of Moses. 613, like this is how you're supposed to do it. You know, you can't mix your fabrics, you can't do whatever. So the first kind of law is the civil law, meaning this is how you're to govern your people. This is what you're supposed to do with kings and judges and whatever. The second type of law is ceremonial law. This is how you sacrifice things. This is how you work in the temple. The third type of law is the moral law. This is what's right and wrong. Now, this isn't a biblical distinction, right? There's nothing in the New Testament that says there were three kinds of laws, in it, but basically it, it works out pretty well. The whole Old Testament reflects the heart of God to lead his people. But when we're talking about the civil law and the ceremonial law, not all of those things are directly applicable. And so what we do is, we try to see what was the moral meaning behind a law. Is this a moral law? Is this something that's picked up in the New Testament? So it's really interesting that in the thing where the president starts talking about uh, where she said something about homosexuality is an abomination, he quoted a verse from, what was it, Leviticus, I think? Almost as if there's not a whole bunch of stuff in the New Testament about a Christian sexual ethic. And there is. There's a whole storyline. There's a whole biblical theology of this that goes through. He could have quoted Romans or some other part, you know. So what we do, that's what we do, right? So that's why we have a, a biblical, what we call a biblical sexual ethic, but we also don't worry about mixing the fabrics in our clothes, right? Because we're on a, this, this is a moral law that is carried through the staircase. Um, I'll read you this verse too. This is important. As we're dealing with the law, as we're thinking about the law of God, 
This is the covenant, this is from Jeremiah, that I will make with the house of Israel, meaning the people of God, after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. So this is key. In the new covenant, the law is going to change the way that it functions with the people of God. The moral law is going to be like written on our hearts because we have the Spirit inside of us. And here's the thing. Where does good come from? What makes something good? Um, Just yesterday, I saw a tweet that said, if you need fear of divine judgment to do something good, then you're actually a terrible person. And then everybody, I saw the tweet on Reddit because I go on Reddit a lot. Then everybody on Reddit was like, yeah, these Christians are all the devil, right? Uh, You know. Okay, well, here's the thing, though, that completely misunderstands why we think something is good. We don't just do something good because we're afraid of hell. That's not how Christianity works. What makes something good and what makes something wrong is it reflects the very heart of God himself, right? God is good. He is perfect. And so the things that reflect his heart and his character, that's what makes something good. And so we don't do good things because we're afraid of hell. We do it because it reflects God's heart and because that's perfection. That's beauty, right? That's where it comes from. And now we have that law as his followers written on our hearts. So Jesus, what he does now, he finishes with an example for these people. You ready to get controversial? Here we go. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Okay, so Jesus has just talked about the law, and now he applies it. it if he was in our culture now, okay, this, like divorce was the hot topic issue of Jesus' day. If he was in our culture now, he would have said, this is how where good comes from. This is how the law of God applies to people in the new covenant. Now let's talk about sexuality and gender. Or uh, let's talk about abortion, right? Those are kind of the two hot topic issues in our day. That wasn't the hot topic issue in Jesus' day. In Jesus' day, divorce was. So in this day, there were two basically camps uh, within like the religious leaders talking about divorce. One side said you can never under any circumstance get a divorce for any reason. And the other side said you can get a a divorce if your wife burns your toast. Right? Those were kind of the, those were the two, the two extremes. And so everybody, Jesus gets asked about this a bunch so let's go through kind of the Old Testament. What does it say in the Old Testament? Just real quick. We're not, uh, yeah, we have time, I think. So this is Jesus in Matthew. It says, um, you're allowed to get divorced for sexual immorality. Whoever divorces his wife, uh, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever di- marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So the first thing is, There are some circumstances where Jesus himself from his own mouth says it's okay to get a divorce. It's not sinful to get a divorce. This is the first one. Jumping to 1 Corinthians, but if an unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. Meaning, if you're a believer and your wife or husband is an unbeliever and they take off, okay. Right? So desertion is another one that the scriptures kind of add. Um, in the book of Matthew, Jesus says this too. So we have these two rules. Why is divorce even an option? Because the people have hard hearts. The Pharisees came to test him and said, uh, is it lawful to divorce a wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from beginning made them male and female 
And he said, therefore, man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. And they said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said, because your heart, the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. Right? Oops, I just closed that. Sorry, let me open that back up. So Jesus, in talking about divorce, what he says was God's plan for marriage was never for people to get divorced. But he knows that we're sinful and we're fallen. So in the law of Moses, there were certain rules. You were allowed to get divorced because of that. But uh, I don't have this verse up here. But in Ephesians, we, we learned that God's plan for marriage was always to teach human beings in a living picture about the love of Christ for his church. Ephesians 5 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's beautiful, right? So divorce in our day, we're not going to get into this a ton, but kingdom people, followers of Jesus, we should take the idea of divorce very seriously. Not just because there's one rule in the Old Testament that says you're not allowed to get divorced or something, but because, like I said, marriage is a picture of our relationship with Christ. There's this whole story of marriage that flows throughout Scripture. For some reason, though, church people have completely given up on the biblical view of divorce and marriage and what that means. And uh, basically, it happened the generation before me, right? my parents' generation. It, like, everybody got divorced. It was kind of... Uh, what we're supposed to do is, except in rare circumstances, we're supposed to love the other person. But Christians, we, some, for some reason, just decided this part of the holiness of God and the law of God doesn't really apply anymore. Um, in, do you remember, what was it, Prop something about gay marriage in California? Uh, what year was that? Like, were any of you in California for that? 2008 or something, 10, somewhere in there. What was the prop? Does anybody remember? I don't remember the number. Prop 8, yeah, I think that might have been it. Well, anyway, I saw a comedian, a gay comedian, say, and it was a, such a great line. He said, um, I'm sorry that the sanctity of my gay marriage is ruining the, or sorry, my gay marriage is ruining the sanctity of your fifth marriage. And I thought that was funny because what he noticed was something that I had thought about is that a long time ago, Christians gave up on this high ideal of marriage. But then when it came to gay marriage, we pretended like we really cared. But when it came to our own marriage, that, so without saying any like, one, you know, without getting real political about gay marriage, like this comedian really hit the nail on the head is we're not following the law of God. We're not walking up the staircase the way that Jesus wants us to. Um, and we've kind of given up on it, right? Um, but anyway, back to this. This is the key, though, with this, with this idea. He gives a specific example, divorce. But do you see what Jesus did in all those verses that I read? Was he walked the people up the staircase. He started at the beginning. God's original plan for humanity was these loving marriages. That's a timeless ethical principle that leads us to the very heart of God. Then what he says was, well, go up a stair. Moses permitted divorce because you guys suck, not because you're supposed to be that way. And then he moves it up a stair. Okay, now we're in the new covenant. So what does that mean? Well, except in rare circumstances, your divorce, I'm sorry, your marriage is a picture of the way that Christ says that I love you as a church. And so by sticking it out, you're living out like a living parable of how much I love you. And so what I've actually seen in churches is I have seen people, and this is like pretty cool, 
I have seen, like, I had a friend whose wife cheated with his best friend. And according to sort of what we read here, he could have, the guy, my friend, could have just left. He could have said, I'm out of here. But what he said was, I'm a believer, and she's a believer. And our marriage is a picture of how much Christ loves the church. And I'm going to love her the way Christ loves the church. And they stuck it out, and they went to count, they figured it out, and now they're happily married, and they have a couple of kids. Right? So, like, the idea is not these just blind rules. It's work your way up the staircase. Look through the whole scripture and figure out sort of these, um, is how we do Christian ethics. All right, so I want to give you just three closing ideas because we're basically out of time. When you're reading these Old Testament laws, I'm going to give you three principles for this, okay? The first is obviously what we've been talking about. Remember the staircase. Remember what stair you're on, but also remember how important the stairs below you are. Because the, the Old Testament law reveals the heart of God. Take the law with the donkey. If you find somebody's donkey, was it a donkey? If you find somebody's donkey, give it, if you find your brother's donkey, give it back to your brother. And if you don't find your brother, take it home until he comes and finds you and gets his donkey back. Okay, what's the heart behind that principle? It is loving your neighbor, right? What's that? Yeah, don't steal, loving your neighbor. We're taking care of each other. Now, we don't have donkeys, right? I, we have iPhones, okay? John loses his iPhone. I'm not going to sell it on Craigslist. I'm going to hold it until he comes over to my house. I'm going to give him, right? You see how we do this? Because John is my brother in Christ, and there, there's a way to take the principle and say, what's the, the law of love behind it, right? Not just like blindly following this list of rules. Now that some, it's easier with some laws than others, um, but Basically, right, you get the idea. Um, all right, so that's the first thing. Second thing, remember that the law shows you your weakness. This is key. Uh, the book of Romans, I didn't put these verses on the thing, but the book of Romans says this, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes a knowledge of sin. That's key. Through the law comes a knowledge of sin. The Bible Project has a great video about the law. And in that video, they point out something that's really interesting. They say, this is how it worked. Do you notice the whole law is not given in those books that you can't get through in your reading plan? Um, is not given at once. It's not all given in Exodus. It's not all given in Leviticus. It's not all given in Deuteronomy or Numbers. What happens is this. God gives them a big chunk of the law. And then the people rebel. Then he forgives them, and he gives them another chunk of the law. And then the people rebel. And then he forgives them, and he gives them another chunk of the law. And so we have the law spread out over these different parts. The reason is, that's how the human heart works. And part of the reason that God gave us the law was to show us that we need salvation. So when you read a law and you think, okay, I'm supposed to take care of my brother in Christ. I'm supposed to take care of people. I'm supposed to care for widows and orphans and foreigners and whatever, right? This is the principle behind the law. Do I do that? Sometimes. Do I always do that? No way. And so as we look at this stuff, what it's supposed to do is make you go, boy, I, I need a savior. And that's the third point. Remember that the patterns, they all lead to, remember the patterns, the staircase, all of it, it leads to Jesus. Right? The top of the, you're supposed to stand on the staircase and look up. And at the top of the staircase is Jesus standing there in eternity, waiting to welcome you home. Think about some of these patterns we see in the Old Testament. Passover. This is the easiest one. We just did this. 
on uh, Monday, Thursday together with Jews for Jesus. The guy came and did the whole Passover thing. But think about it. Passover is what? I need you to take this spotless, perfect lamb, kill it, spread the blood on your door so that when the judgment of God comes, it will pass over your family, your house. You won't face that judgment of God. Isn't that a perfect picture of what happens with Jesus? This is why Jesus picks up this language. That's why John, when he sees Jesus coming, John the Baptist, hey, it's the Lamb of God come to take away the sin of the world. He knew the pattern or the pattern of something like a priest. We need in between with us and God. And we, we were just reading about the mediator and the redeemer and all that stuff in the New City Catechism. Jesus is the perfect mediator. When we read stories like David and Goliath, we don't read it. We've talked about this a bunch, but this is my favorite one. You know, you're not David, right, is the, the Matt Chandler thing. You're not David. You're not the guy who needs to defeat the giants in your life, right? Jesus is the guy who's defeated the ultimate giant in your life. And so hopefully this is encouraging to you in reading through some of the Old Testament and seeing how we got to where we are. Hopefully you see how important the Old Testament is when you go through, not just on your reading plan. You can read Leviticus whenever. And if you don't, I'm going to teach it next. You just wait. I'll do it. I'll do it. No. All right. Here's how I want to end. Anybody want to take a stab? How would you answer the president? 